you know, we talked about safety, we talked about efficacy. I think number one is COVID a risk to your child. So a child who has serious lung conditions, yeah, I, I would count them in that. And so the COVID vaccine is going to protect them because they are higher risk. Number two is COVID a risk to somebody in your family. Welcome back to an all new season of Off the Gram, the show where we bring you straight into the trenches with us to help you live your best life, channel your inner girl boss, and navigate the ever-changing landscapes of wellness and social media. Hey everybody, Heidi here. We are so thankful to have Dr. Daria back for her third time on our show. As a refresher, she's a Yale-trained emergency room physician and mom of two from Atlanta, Georgia, who earned an MBA from Harvard before joining the faculty of Harvard Medical School to teach medicine. She founded True V Lab, a company that strives to provide women access to high-quality, data-driven health and wellness information and the peace of mind and confidence that comes with it. Dr. Daria is also the best-selling author of Mom Hacks, and her TED Talk, How to Triage Your Life Like an ER Doctor, had over 1 million views in a month. She contributes regularly as an on-air expert to CNN, Headline News, NBC, Dr. Oz, and Thrive Global, to name a few. We're beyond excited to have the top doc back today to talk about the latest research and guidelines surrounding the new COVID vaccine for children under five. Listen to this show if... You have children under five. You want to separate medical facts from fiction in regards to the newest COVID vaccine. You are on the fence about protecting your child with the COVID vaccine and want to know if it's safe. Bonus, you want Dr. Daria to decipher all of the confusing new research on supplements and more. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Daria. We are so excited to have you on as our first third time guest. (laughs) Hi, Heidi. Hi, Megan. So good to see you both. Thank you so much for being here. And considering that you just helped write some guidelines for vaccines and kids with Brown University School of Public Health, there isn't a more perfect or qualified doctor to help us sort through all of the noise surrounding the new COVID vaccine for under fives. And as you know, both Jamie and I have children under five, so we are especially grateful for you giving us more of your time, expertise, and knowledge. And we're going to hop on to some other topics at the end as well. So thank you. Yes, of course. I'm so glad to be here. I am, I know it's a confusing time for parents right now. So the more we can make this simple, the better. Yeah, no, thank you. And So for me personally, as someone who got the COVID vaccine early because of my autoimmune condition and who took her six-year-olds to get the vaccine the first day they were available, I don't really pay that much attention to all of the sort of anti-vaccine rhetoric. I err on the side of science because I like facts and data. So I don't actually know what all the naysayers are saying. Can you enlighten us just for a little background as to why there's a subset of people who are against the vaccine? Is it specifically for the under fives? And is it about the side effects? The uh, You can say it better yeah. than I can, the myocarditis, et cetera. Yeah. Like, so, and Heidi, you are so right. So anytime I look at any vaccine or any therapeutic, it's like we gotta, we have to weigh what is the efficacy and the medical need against or kind of like minus the risk. So what's the benefit minus the risk? As long as that is over zero, then great, you should vaccinate. Initially, I think I think COVID has been a really tough time for anybody to understand the science because it's been moving so quickly. And the general public has kind of seen like sometimes how, how the sausage gets made. And I also think as a result, some organizations have not shared the results in the best, most transparent way that they should. I don't think because of any evil wishing, I think it was just trying to get ahead of it and trying to get ahead of the messaging. So I think a lot of people have kind of glommed onto things that they think were concerning, primarily due to a lot of fear mongers out there. There are a lot of fear mongers who 
always gain notoriety by saying that this is something we need to be scared of. So yes, but when we look at safety, I, for these vaccines, I have, I have the, the FDA document here for uh, Moderna. It's a uh, highly oh my gosh, uh, you guys, and red. Like a thousand pages. She's holding it, it is, up. <laughs> it is. I love that. So these are the things, safety things I look at that I think are valid and worth looking at. One of them was myocarditis, as you mentioned. And I think that is a real thing. And we'll get to that. It's a real thing in terms of concern from COVID in general, too. People also glam onto, so I'll come back to explain that. People also glam onto the fertility. So they think it's a fertility issue, which let me just, I can solve that in about three lines. The people who initially came out, there were two different scientists who came out of saying that this was an issue confusing essentially a protein that's in COVID with a protein that is uh, involved in our placenta. And they said it's a fertility issue. However, now not only did that biomedically not make sense, when we now look at this group of pregnant women or pe- women who were attempting to get pregnant, who got with pregnant women who got the vaccine while they were pregnant, there was not a higher rate of miscarriage. In fact, there was a higher rate of miscarriage in women who were not vaccinated. So put that one to bed. I do not have any fertility concerns about this. I do think that we've seen that COVID, when people get natural COVID infection, it kind of skewed their fertility a little bit. Maybe their cycle, I mean, for a cycle or two, again, because of the funky nature that COVID has with our immune system and inflammation. But it's not that our vaccines are going to lower your fertility. But so let's talk efficacy, because I think there's also a lot being reported in the mainstream media that they're not as effective or they don't appear as effective in kids. And the virus is shown to not be too severe. If they do get it, kids aren't being hospitalized that often. Mm -hmm. And especially if your kid has already had COVID, as so many have now, is it even beneficial to still get them the vaccine at all? Yeah, I think this is Dr. Daria. I think this is really valid. So we talked about safety. And we'll go back. I want to go back to safety to talk about myocarditis because I think we need to unpack that. But we can skip to efficacy if you want to, Megan, because we have to look at. So say we think it's a safe vaccine. It's like, okay, well, we should still only give it if we think it's effective. Is it effective? So you're right, Megan. I think there is a lot of fear when people talk about the death rates. I pulled up the death rates for children one to four. I have to look over it because I have it written over here is for children one to four in the last two years, COVID has caused about 150 to 200 deaths. 180 deaths across the entire United States. So that is not a large number, but it's 150 to 200 deaths that didn't have to happen. And about 50% of those are children who did not have any prior medical conditions. So it's about half and half kids with prior medical conditions. So it is something that we have to be aware of. And also to put in further context, if you look at cause of death, that's been used lately and actually was inappropriately used. So I went back and looked back at the data myself. For children, COVID is number seven in terms of cause of death for the last two years, kids age one to four. Now, again, though, it's hugely dwarfed by number one, which is accidents and fire and falls and car accidents and things and drownings and pools. Those are still much bigger, but it is number seven. So it is top 10 cause of death. So it's important to know. Does that mean so COVID, is it zero risk? No. Is it... It's there. It's not something that we need to be panicking about. So I think parents need to know that so that we're not like led by fear in terms of the context. And of course, there's also children who got hospitalized and Miss C and other things who don't fall into that death rate that we want to avoid. So I hope that helps, Megan, to kind of give you the context. When we talk about 
efficacy. Oh, no, actually, let me pause there. Does that make sense in terms of understanding how big of a problem this is and maybe give you a little bit more peace of mind? Sure. I mean, one child's death is one child too many. Obviously. Exactly. I mean, from a parent's perspective. Yeah. But you do hear, well, my kid's not going to get that sick. They've got, they get a cold, they get a flu. So why do I have to bother? I mean, I think that's a yeah. big piece of the argument. But, you know, yeah. just even hearing that it's 180 to 200 kids, that's too many kids. Kids shouldn't. Yeah, it should. Exactly. And even when you look at some people who are kind of, you know, less proponents of vaccine, they'll still say, you know, those are children who did not have to die. And we have to remember that. The other thing, just from a strictly immunological standpoint that I have seen as a physician with COVID is COVID the vaccine. Yes, it stimulates an immune reaction. We, our body gets an immune reaction and inflammation as a result. It's fairly predictable, however. COVID infection stimulates an immune reaction that we cannot predict. It is an uncontrolled reaction. That is why. That is why we say, you know, yes, the risk is small, but if you are in that risk group, then the risk is so unpredictable, so variable that we want to typically protect as a result. Because even though the numbers are small, it's a really big problem amid so small numbers. So that's why when I say why I would suggest, you know, why there is efficacy, why there's a purpose, we'll get to the actual efficacy of the vaccine, but why there is a purpose and a medical need, it does absolutely exist. COVID, unpredictable, high immune reaction to COVID. So if your kid did have COVID, I mean, we had OG pre-vaccine COVID, right? <laughs> and knock on wood, have not had it since. But but if we did a show with you about it. Huh, exactly. <laughs> I know, and all the over, outpatient therapies, oh, your out, over-the-counter therapies we had you on. You're so incredible. You got me through that. But now what about someone who's saying, oh, my whole family just went through a bout of COVID. So how is the vaccine? Why is the vaccine still beneficial for them? Do you hold yeah. off? Yeah. So, okay. So this is gets to a question about something called hybrid immunity, which we are now, I don't know if y'all ladies, you might've heard about it. I know you have a really smart audience. They may be aware of it. Hybrid immunity essentially says when you've had the infection, like natural infection, plus a vaccine dose, it actually increases your immunity even further than if you just had the infection or just had the vaccine. I was going to ask, is there a time period that people need to wait after having it? So what I do recommend here is waiting. So I, I tell people, usually I say wait about one to two months, and especially if you have an older child. So say you have a child who's five to, you know, up to 11. They had COVID. In general, I'll still say wait one to two months. One, because we know your natural immunity from COVID is going to protect you. 30 days, 60 days, you not only have antibodies, you got those T cells. You're pretty good in terms of, while you may get catch it again, you probably won't get severely ill. So that's one reason is that you just don't need it in those first couple of months. Secondly, and this is especially in the case in males 12, 12 to 30 or so, when we look at myocarditis risk as a result of the vaccine, the very highest cases were after the second dose, when the second dose was given within three to four weeks after the first. So now what people are actually recommending and what I tend to recommend is after the first dose, in an otherwise healthy 12 to 30 year old, consider waiting two months because that's going to give you the immunity that you need. Plus, it's also going to decrease your risk of myocarditis. But what about in the under fives? Because that's where people are up in arms about right now, right? Because it's new. So, yeah, of course. <laughs> so, in the under five, say you got, so then I would say, I still say wait one to two months after a natural infection for the same reason. Um, okay. They're going to, under fives are at a much lower risk of myocarditis. Let me talk about that next because I know that's like the elephant in the room. And I will say, Dr. Daria, I have a friend in my town whose daughter did suffer from that. And it's pretty damn scary. 
from did she get myocarditis after the vaccine or after, after COVID? the vaccine? Mm, yes. How's she doing? Um, she's doing good. They, she actually had to have a heart procedure. I mean, they went in and tried to, re, she just kind of passed out on a soccer field. They had to try to emulate the response in a surgical environment. Mm-hmm. They weren't able to do that. So they're just monitoring her very, very closely, but it's, it was terrifying. Yeah. Myocarditis is no joke. As Megan, I think, you know, I developed myocarditis about two years ago um, and spent 14 months in and out of the hospital. Myocarditis is scary. So we talked about, at the very beginning, we talked about safety. And we were talking about myocarditis, fertility are kind of the two big things. Another little things, those are the main ones. So I pulled up some numbers. I have to get them because I there have been numbers floating around everywhere. And I wanted to have numbers for you guys because I know that you like numbers as much as I do. So... I pulled up and I, there's so many headlines. And again, what we're trying to do today is take the fear and emotion out of COVID vaccine and just give people a systematic way to look at it. So myocarditis, here's your risk. Myocarditis after COVID is your highest risk. So again, we said COVID is a highly inflammatory infection. So myocarditis after COVID is your risk here. Myocarditis after COVID vaccine is down here. I'm trying to keep it within the screen. And then there's myocarditis. If you live in a bubble and you never get COVID or never get vaccinated, you have that much lower risk. So what is that? So say you're looking at males and I'm saying males, you know, 16 to 24, because they have the highest risk. So you can say anybody younger, five and 11 younger are going to have even lower risk. So they just without COVID vaccine, without infection in the bubble, have a rate of about 10 per 100,000 getting myocarditis every year. If there were no COVID, no myocarditis. Now, if you add on the vaccine on top of that, you get about two per 100,000. And I'm geeking into the numbers because I know you have a smart audience, but it's somewhere between two to 10 per 100,000 for the vaccine. Getting COVID is somewhere between 50 to 100 per 100,000 for the vaccine. So yes, you see how it's much greater. Your risk of getting from the infection is much greater, somewhere between five to 16 to 20 times greater from the COVID infection than it is from the vaccine. That makes sense. So we have a small number of people who get myocarditis from the vaccine, but it's much worse if you get it from the infection. Also, if you look at the clinical symptoms of myocarditis from COVID, tends to be a higher, about a 14% mortality rate from COVID versus myocarditis from the COVID vaccine is much, much lower mortality. And Dr. Dura, are okay. your myocarditis had nothing to do with COVID, right? You just... So we think it actually is due to COVID. It happened before I got the vaccine, about three to four months before I got the vaccine. I got really, really sick in February of 2020. Okay. Um, really bad upper respiratory infection. And they think it's possibly due to COVID started before I got my vaccine. Before we even knew what COVID was though, right? February. We 20th. barely knew. We barely yeah. knew. We yeah. didn't think it was here in Georgia. And then we found out that in fact was in Georgia. And I was treating patients in the ER with it at the time. And you had me take, and I still take it, Qcertin. Is it Qcertin supplement? Quercetin? Mm-hmm. What, what is it? You call, mm-hmm. It starts with a Q. Quercetin, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. Did you start taking that? So that was mainly, I wanted you to take that probably during, during COVID. I just take it all the time now. Should I not? <laughs> More is better. <laughs> oh, Megan, I love you. Um, you probably don't have to worry about it now and you probably don't have a benefit from it. Okay, fine. Yeah. So does that help? Does that make sense? Myocarditis from infection, from vaccine, from bubble. 
Yeah, I'm so curious and maybe there's no data on this and that's fine. But all I can, like my brain just keeps asking. So the people who've gotten myocarditis from the vaccine, would they have gotten it also from COVID if that had happened first? Is it just like they're predisposed to something or? So that is a brilliant question, Heidi. And there was another study I was looking at this morning. It's from nature and they were looking at, and that study had a lot of stuff that I didn't like, but what it found when they did case controls, the people who had gotten myocarditis after the COVID vaccine were also three times more likely to have gotten myocarditis before. Mm -hmm. So, so yes, I would, what I would tell to somebody, if you've had myocarditis before, you are at higher risk of myocarditis from the COVID vaccine, but you're really at much higher risk from myocarditis from COVID. And at least the COVID vaccine is a controlled situation. And I would also have them space out their COVID vaccines much more. Again, we get to that two to three months. So you know you're getting that dose. You know the exact dose you're getting spread out over time versus like you get the COVID infection. It's like, boom, you get all the COVID all at the same time. Much higher risk of inflammation and side effects. Yeah. I mean, we had a totally avoidable family case of COVID due to somebody not being honest about taking a COVID test before coming to see us. Really? Um, Yes, really. And I was terrified because my son, who's four, has serious lung issues. And so my biggest fear was him getting it. And I have an autoimmune condition, as I already mentioned, and I got so sick. And it was actually recommended to me that I go to the hospital and get the IV, but I was actually alone with my three children. My husband had flown out of town before he knew that we had it. And so they sent me the antivirals, which, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I imagine saved me huge, big time. Like, you know, obviously I've never had COVID before, so I don't know how my body reacts, but I imagine that they really helped big time. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I I was in really, really rough shape. And so my question, I mean, here I am, yay. <laughs> so my, and I don't have long haulers. So, you know, I think that's, right. mm-hmm. but so my question is, is there anything like that for little kids? Cause they can't take the antiviral, right? Yeah, there, there's, there are more therapies that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a number of different things, but that not to the same extent that we have as an adult, but yes, there are therapeutics that we can give in little kids. But that's why when I'm telling people to be systematic about making decisions, I'm oh. glad you kind of brought up yourself and your kids. You know, we talked about safety. We talked about efficacy. I think number one is COVID a risk to your child. So a child who has serious lung conditions, yeah, I, I would count them in that. And so the COVID vaccine is going to protect them because they are higher risk. Number two is COVID a risk to somebody in your family, you. And normally I would say like, we don't, we don't vaccinate our children to protect adults on a population level. I think that's wrong. We vaccinate our children to protect our children. But I think you can easily argue that if mom were to get life-threateningly ill, that's a pretty good reason when we know that the vaccine is safe and get to give the vaccine to that child. Their outcomes are even far worse if something happened to you. And then the third is by vaccinating your child, are you able to kind of be able to get back to the world? Does that mean you're going to be able to not have to worry about masking them and not stress out and not quarantine and all those things? And if you answer yes to any of those, then vaccinate. I am not here to ever to force vaccine on anybody, especially when it comes to the COVID vaccine, because I think there are some kids that will fall into the no, no, no category. And I think that's perfectly fine. And who I think this are is they? Not, well, I mean, I think if you've had a child who is perfectly healthy, family is perfectly healthy, maybe this is a younger child, you don't have other kids who are going to school or other people interacting so much, then that maybe you can say, we're not so high risk. I'm going to keep my child and not give them a vaccine. I think that's fine. If you're a parent who's just really worried, again, then I'm 
it, COVID is not one of those I'm going to, you know, stand up on a, a something and beat, so beat the drum for it. <laughs> I think we have good, I think we have safe, a safe vaccine. I think it's a great option. And I think if you meet any of those three criteria and you say, I want my child to have it just to get back to regular life, I think that's a perfectly valid reason. And that's great. Dr. Daria, for the under fives, do you have a Moderna versus Fiverr? Fiverr. Okay, so this is going to get kind of meaty. So, and I know what I just also said was kind of scandalous because I did say that I think it's, you know, there are some kids and parents who will decide not to vaccinate their child. They're otherwise healthy. Maybe they're a 12 year old male and they're worried about myocarditis and the kid's healthy and they choose not to vaccinate them. I think this is something that I would never force a parent to do. We want parents to be comfortable for that. This next thing I'm going to say that's kind of scandalous is talking about Moderna versus Pfizer because parents need to know this. One, the media is really getting the efficacy levels wrong for Pfizer because everyone, you might have been hearing like 80% efficacy and all these different things. Pfizer, one, the kids didn't show any immune response after the second dose. They don't get in a good immune response until after the third dose, which means now your child is like four months out. They're not getting an immune response. Two, they didn't follow them for as long as the Moderna did. And three, they're basing those numbers on about 10 kids who caught COVID. So really small. And then if you look, and I don't know where it is. I like to pull up here. So here's my <laughs> Pfizer one. If you look in the Pfizer one, it says that Pfizer expects that they will likely have to give a fourth shot to that this will be a four shot series four shots is a lot for a little kid under five so that's you know i think i was talking to different people who were on the fda committee and different things you know the pfizer dose is really small so when would i give a pfizer dose that's the one you can go to your pediatrician. You know, a lot of doctors I've talked to had said that this would be great if you could kind of dose it by weight as opposed to like age. Like suddenly you're 12, let's give you a much higher dose. Having two options means you can kind of do that. If your child's on the small side, then maybe your pediatrician does say, you know, I want them to have some immunity. I think that since they are much smaller, you have a much smaller child, then the smaller dose will still be beneficial and get them some immunity versus a larger dose. Moderna, had a higher efficacy. They had between looking at it, you know, it was 30 to 38 to 50%. And that was against symptomatic infection. Remember, when we talk about efficacy, there's the percent that it reduces your chance of getting sick at all. And then there's percent that it reduces your chance of going to the hospital and reducing your chance of dying. If it reduces your chance of going to the hospital and dying, then I, as an ER doctor, that's what I care about. I don't care if you're sick and your child's at home watching cartoons and sipping on a Slurpee and they're fine. It's kind of like, as long as you're wearing your seatbelt and you have your airbag and you didn't get injured, I don't care that you're in a car accident. I mean, I care for your insurance perspective and on a person to person level, but not as an ER doctor. So when people say the vaccine didn't keep me from getting sick, my child from getting sick, when I say, were they home? Were you home? Were you fine? You maybe felt miserable for two or three days, but you were okay. That means the vaccine did its job. So we have to look at that. And when they're looking at efficacy, they're just talking about efficacy in terms of symptomatic. So we know that hospitalization reduction and death are bigger. So that's really important. That's the point of the vaccines. So Moderna did have a higher percentage than Pfizer. They also did have you know, more side effects. And there was one case of a 12-year-old in terms of cardiomyopathy, because everybody's looking at that now, that they thought might have had myocarditis. He went to the ER and everything was fine. But I just like to mention that because I don't want people to think that we are that I'm trying to keep anything from them. So again, you're a parent, a child under five. In most cases, if you do want to get your child vaccinated, especially if they're on the larger side or you know on the older side, you're probably going to want to go for Moderna. 
in terms of vaccine versus Pfizer, because Pfizer, again, it's going to need to be four shot and it's not going to be that efficacy and they're not going to get efficacy up front until three to four months out versus Moderna. They saw about a 30% reduction after the first dose. So Moderna, you do see some immunity after the very first dose. So you get that advantage. But again, more side effects, more kids with fever and, and pain at the site and different things with Moderna. So with these new under five ones, are the, because it's obviously newer vaccine than the ones mm-hmm. I got or Meg's got, or, you know, you got, I don't know how many boosters you are in, um, but are the newer ones sort of incorporating the new variants or are they still just doing that same? So they're not. Um, and that is the other thing. They did some sensitivity analysis to say what extent would this have protected against Omicron. What I like about the Moderna one is that they actually, the kids were getting the vaccine amidst Omicron. So then when you see the efficacy, it was amidst that. And Moderna had more cases. So you can more reliably look at their efficacy. I do think that the Moderna has said, and if you talk to people on the FDA committee, Moderna is working on a third dose. It's a booster that would be Omicron specific. So there's a chance that your child, oh. if they're under five, gets Moderna two shots now, they would eventually get a third dose, but that will be Omicron specific. Pfizer did not specify if the fourth dose in the FDA they mentioned would be Omicron specific or not. That's so, so interesting. Right. So I so all of these questions actually came from Instagram followers. So they're specific I love them. questions. I love them. <laughs> which is great. Um, but they're they're all very specific. Um so I love it. speaking of like the doses, you know, do we need more boosters? Cause I know the recommendations sort of, I feel like they're forever changing. Like it's only for super high risk or old people or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. So what are, what's the deal with boosters and the efficacy of the vaccines that we've already gotten? Yeah. So if you look at, I mean, there's some really interesting research out of Israel and different places. We know that the efficacy of the vaccines, when they look at antibodies, declines after about six months to nine months to a year. So that does decline after your vaccine. But there are other things that we can't measure from our immune system, T cells and other things that we just can't measure that likely extend your immunity far longer, which is why, yes, while the antibodies may, may look like the efficacy is less, your immune system might be remembering it and probably does remember that it's primed even far longer. That said, I do think that they're going to do another booster. Even when you we were talking about this in the very beginning, they talked about the COVID vaccine becoming potentially an, an annual thing or a, every couple of years. It doesn't mutate at the same rate as flu, so we probably won't have may not do it every year. But I think they might. But I usually tell people your biggest immunity is about is at 28 days after your vaccine. So if you are like you know going to Europe or flying on a plane with your young child or something or with yourself or looking at the fall and what will probably be the peak flu and COVID season this winter. Try to time your COVID vaccine so that your peak immunity is right at your moment of kind of highest risk so that you can kind of ride it out. That's really awesome mm-hmm. advice. Thank you. I have one more mom question. I love <laughs> mom questions. If we don't answer any of them, Heidi, like let's answer more on Instagram. I love these. Thank you. So one of my moms asked, so the studies that have been done are very, you know, short term, obviously, in comparison to all the mm-hmm. other vaccines we have available. So what are some of the potential long-term risks or implications of getting the vaccine several years down the road? So, so this is good. So the good thing, when people talk about mRNA, it's actually not that new of a technology. They have tried mRNA for 
for cancer therapies, for HIV, for Ebola, for a number of different ones. It just never was effective because the mRNA would get into your body and your body would just eat it up and just totally disintegrate it until they came up with these kind of new envelopes, the lipid envelopes that could get it into your body. So it's not that this is something brand new that we've never seen before. They have studied this previously. The good thing is also though that the mRNA that gets injected it degrades within your cells. It's, it's gone after two weeks. So no, we don't expect, it, it doesn't incorporate into your DNA. It doesn't do anything like that. We don't expect that there is going to be really any long-term effects versus I, I think there can be long-term effects from COVID infection. But no, I don't have concerns from the vaccine. And I guess the biggest thing is I can say like from my own kids or talking to a lot of doctors that I work with who we have studied this. And my eight-year-old is fully vaccinated. Um, my five-year-old, what he just turned five, and then he and I, I both caught COVID. So, <laughs> so he did not get his vaccine yet. But we're writing it out, and also going to try and trying to kind of time it also just to peak right as we're going to going into school and into that fall season and COVID season, which I think is entirely fine. I think if parents have younger children who are under five and they have not gotten that yet, you kind of remember you got to time it so you have to do first dose and then second dose. But I think it is really fine to try to time it for the fall season and that peak. And I was going to say something else and I just forgot, but they'll come back to me. So, Dr. Daria, you know, I'm, I'm one of your biggest fans and, I, and I'm really proud and excited and, and love all the work you're doing with Truve Lab. So I feel like before we let you go, do you want to just hit us with a couple of the recent studies and incredible research that you're doing that our listeners just need to know about right now? Yes, absolutely. As y'all know, I launched Truve Lab because I wanted there to be this data-driven source of truth for things when it comes to your health, women's well-being, and parenting and stress. And I just felt like it wasn't anywhere that you could go to just get this information that was science-based, but also like actionable and fun on questions that you're wondering. So we talked, we, we've talked about COVID three times on this show. Although I made, I swore to myself when I did True Lab, I would only do COVID once a month and no. do all the other things. Cause I had spent two years on TV and on news talking about COVID and I was done. So we do COVID when there's something really relevant, like kids vaccines, but otherwise Last week we did, um, so there's other things we cover. So like last week, the USPSTF came out with a recommendation about supplements. Now, uh, Megan, you mentioned, Christine, do you ladies take any supplements? Did you see this recommendation that essentially said all supplements are a waste of money and time if you looked at the headlines? It's yeah, well, I'm, because I, so I'm celiac, so I don't absorb things properly. So I've been hmm. on a D and a B12 supplement yeah. for 15 years. So I, I, that, I, those headlines scared the crap out of me because I'm like, I need my supplements. I need to keep my D and my B12 up. Yes. Okay. So for, the headlines were wrong. Okay. <laughs> Throw away the headlines. Two things. So one, they looked at vitamin beta carotene, which is a precursor of vitamin A and vitamin E. And they said for those taking those just preventively can increase your risk of lung cancer or prostate cancer. So you ladies don't have to worry about the latter too much. And it was like lung cancer and smokers with an asbestos exposure risk. It's, you know, it's kind of a little bit small, but I don't recommend people just prophylactically start taking a bunch of beta carotene or vitamin E anyways, because they're fat soluble. So they can, your body can store them. The rest of the vitamins, they did not say they were a waste of time. They said, we cannot tell from the data if there is benefit or harm. And that's because the way the studies are run is they're giving it to everybody, regardless of whether somebody needs it. And then they see, did everybody get better? And if somebody didn't need it, of course they weren't going to get better. So it's kind of an impossible way to run studies. The reason it's run that way is because it would cost way too much if we said, we're going to check everybody's blood level. We're going to give them these and then we're going to follow them for 20 years. Nobody will do that study. What we do know 
is in people who need things. So I say we should do not blind supplementation, which is what's studied, but targeted supplementation. So Megan, you having celiac and taking your B vitamins, that's targeted. Somebody who has a low vitamin D, taking vitamin D supplementation to raise their vitamin D, that's targeted. Folic acid in pregnancy, all these things, zinc when you're sick, all these things are targeted. So anybody who's taking it, I say, don't just go take a whole bunch of vitamins because you saw them at, you know, at the store. Talk to your doctor, find out what you're low in, what you have symptoms of, and then absolutely take those supplements to get those up to a healthy level. And wasn't there also something about like massive D levels? Because there are some people who prescribe like those really, really high doses yeah. of vitamin D. So yeah, so we did another report that's actually coming out this week or next week. It might get bumped by the kids vaccine. So anybody wants a report, they can just sign up at our website. We promise it'll it'll come out in the next two weeks. And your website um, is? It's TrueLab, T-R-U-E-V-E lab.com backslash sign up. So TrueLab.com backslash. We'll have that. just want to go that. Yes. Um, but we've, that promise is coming out in the next two weeks. Most of the U.S. guidelines recommend way too low of a level of vitamin D. They recommend like 20 to 30 nanograms per milliliter. That's actually not optimal. That's just like barely so you're not dysfunctional. But that's certainly not a way we like to live. Like I don't want to live barely not dysfunctional. Like I need all the help I can get. I need optimal. And so optimal vitamin D is actually 45 to 60 nanograms per milliliter. And that is for a number of things. It's for, yes, bone health, but it's for uh, immunity, autoimmunity, mortality, and even our mental health can actually benefit if you are somebody who's susceptible. So Again, that's a definitely a place where you want to go check your levels and get a higher and take it if you're supplementing. Now, yes, as you mentioned, Heidi, there are some people who are prescribing like crazy high, you know, 50,000 and higher IUs. But there's some people with their doctor might need that because they have a certain way of metabolizing it. But you only are, should be doing that if somebody's literally watching your vitamin D level. It's what you do. Get your vitamin D level. If it's below 45 to 60, take a supplement. Talk to your doctor, whether that's two, five, ten thousand 10,000 IUs per day recheck it in three months because you want it 45 to 60. Vitamin D, fortunately, you you have kind of a good window, but you don't want a vitamin D level of 100 or higher nanograms per milliliter. That is dangerous. You can get toxicity, you can get problems, kidney stones, other things with that too. Can we just talk about the um, melatonin thing for children, please? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm asking for a friend. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I remember seeing your email. So, (laughs) so we did this on melatonin. And again, it in part because I had a lot of moms saying, can, should I, what can I do for my kids? I'm giving them melatonin, different things. So I wanted to do a deep dive. So what I now recommend is I really recommend against giving kids melatonin on any long-term basis. And if anybody's listening and they've given their kid melatonin, you did not mess up your child. I'm sure we've all like, you know, messing up your child is part of parenting. So there's probably plenty of things that we've done to mess up our child. I mean, you know, <laughs> giving them melatonin in the past, like you did not mess up your child, but I would recommend stopping it. There are two cases when I say to give melatonin, one is jet lag. So like if you go six hours on a lovely trip across different time zones, which you should bring me with you, then it's okay to give your child melatonin day you leave and, you know, for about three days to reset their time clock. And there's another of kids have Asperger's, autism, ADHD, or blindness, some of the things like that, then yes, there's indications for medical therapy for melatonin. But here's why I tell people otherwise, you don't want to give it. One is it is secreted by our body and it has actually hormonal effects. So there have been questions about if it can actually affect our reproductive hormones. 
even in like the 1990s, one person suggested, should we use it as a birth control? It didn't get put into that, but it does have these broader reaching effects. It affects our metabolism. It affects our immune system. It affects our body clock. So that's one. And when you take it as a pill, when the, when your body secretes it, it has this very nice checks and balances. Like it controls it like that fancy, you know, European time clock you have. When you take it as a pill, you just have a quick hit of melatonin and then you should fall back down. It doesn't imitate the way your body does. And secondly, here's my biggest thing. In the US, it's over the counter. And it's actually illegal to be over the counter in the EU, UK, I think uh, Japan, somebody from New Zealand said it's only a prescription available there too. And what's the problem when it's over the counter, there was a study that looked at the bottles and they said that about 70% of the bottles didn't have the melatonin that they said they had in terms of concentration. And sometimes they were up to like 400% difference from one lot to another. That's and some terrifying. even had serotonin, right? So it's like, and the worst inconsistencies were in the smaller doses, which is what we're giving our kids. So what I tell parents is, for these reasons, do not give your child melatonin. If you need to give it to them for three days while you're doing other, the hygiene, turning off their lights at night, dim the lights. In my house, our overhead lights are not on the two hours before bed. We have 30 watt lamps at the bedside. My kids are not on their devices for two hours before bed. I make sure that my kids get at least an hour of sunshine outdoors a day. Those are the things that will help reset your child's body clock. And if you need to use melatonin for like three days, four days to get them used to that, if you have been, that's okay. But I would get off it really quickly. That's great information. Thank you. You're welcome. Which actually ties a little bit into your woman's burnout study because if moms can't get their kids to sleep, they might burn out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. yes. And there's way more. We're also going to be doing, there's a lot more in our melatonin report. I went into way more details and we're going to be doing a lot of other things, work with some sleep experts to give moms even more. Like here's 10 things to do so you can take your kids off melatonin without losing your sanity, which probably should be the name of the blog post. Yeah. Um, but um, so we'll do that. And again, if people want that faster, email me the co topics we cover are what people request of us. So that's why I'm happy to answer this. So you mentioned the burnout study. We have the burnout study in women. You were both huge proponents of it. It just, we did it this past fall and winter and we're actually, we just submitted it to a journal on Friday. So Congrats. thank you. And it's the largest, most comprehensive study on burnout in women, especially during and post COVID. And not just like, I didn't want to just say, how burned out are you? Like, and give people a result of, hey, everybody's burned out. Cause that's kind of depressing. <laughs> I wanted to say, what is it about today? What about our environment? What is it about your behavior or your mindset or all these things that you can change that are making you feeling burned out? Because now you can kind of get as like a little prescriptive and you can do that to go reduce your own personal burnout in your own life. And so that's the whole point. The study, we're going to have actually three papers that we expect to come out of it. And the very first one will be coming out hopefully in about six to eight weeks. So I am so excited about that. So exciting. So where should people follow you so that they have all the most up-to-date information? Where can they find yeah, you? So the easiest way to get the newsletter and I'm going to be turning, y'all got this before my uh, vaccine and kids is even published. So if people want more on this or on any of these rewards, go to truvelab.com backslash sign up. And that's T-R-U-E-V-E lab.com backslash sign up. That's the direct way. Of course, they can just go to truvelab.com. They can also follow me on social pretty much everywhere at Dr. Daria on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, LinkedIn. And it's Daria with two R's because I always yes. get that wrong. Yes, it is Daria with two R's. Even if you forget, you can go to my website, drdaria.com. It directs you to the truth lab. 
but that's the best place. And we send that out in our newsletter. They get the very first True Lab reports. And I want people to think of it as their, you know, their answer lab for women's well-being and parenting and burnout. If you have a question, submit it to us. We take our future topics from what people ask us. Amazing. All right. Megs, do you want to bring us out with our very last no, section? You know, this is your third karmica. So I probably don't have to explain anymore, Dr. Daria, that karma is a Sanskrit word for action. So we ask all of our amazing, super knowledgeable guests, you, what is one small actionable item that our listeners could do for a short period of time that would yield a large result? So small action, large result. Okay. Ooh, there's so many things. I love these. And I love you ladies for doing this and really making this actionable. I'm going to steer. I know we talked about vaccines. I'm going to steer out of that. And I'm going to do something that I've been doing lately. And uh, I, I kind of joke, I call it 3125. It's how I got myself back into shape after being in the hospital for 14 months. Every day I go for my three mile walk, which is now a walk. It used to be an intense run. It's now a pleasurable walk. I call a girlfriend or do something on it. I eat within a 12 hour interval and I don't eat for the other 12 hours. And I do that five days a week, which means that two days a week, I get to have fun and cheat a little bit. And that's all good. And uh, that's really kind of a simplified way that I am staying healthy without going crazy and uh, without having to be super intense or stressed about it. Love that. Three, 12, five. Yes. Three miles, 12 hours to eat five days a week. Love it. Love it. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Daria, for sharing so much information with all of us that we hope really need and want to know. And everybody's just so, you know, stressed about all of the misinformation that's out there. So we're so grateful that you come on here with data and facts and sift through it for us. So thank you. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on the gram at off the gram podcast. And you can listen to us anywhere podcasts are listened to. Be sure to drop us a few stars if you love us and we'll see you next time. Bye.